we go. Boy, that was busy, wasn't it? All right, that was busy this morning. It seems, uh, I guess everybody's get back in town. All the kids are back here. And, uh, you know, it's really, it's really, um, well, I guess it, Personally, it's really enterprising, or maybe not enterprising, but it's encouraging to me when I see all these uh, uh, younger families and these parents running around and chasing their kids and having to run. brings back memories. <laughs> uh, we still have to do that a little bit, but there was a time when we did that a lot more than we have to now. We praise the Lord for that. But anyway, um, there is hope. Young, young families, there is hope. There's a, a future as your kids grow up. And uh, um, just let you know that it's a blessing, really, to hear the kids running around, singing and complaining and fussing and, and doing all kinds of stuff. What a joy it is. So let's give the Lord thanks uh, briefly this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the privileges that we have to come together for the design of the church that you have designed and for the design of the family that you have designed and ordained. And as we gather together, Father, may we be interested in glorifying you in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I had the distinct privilege of being, uh, of bringing to you two chapters in Joshua, Joshua chapter 7 and chapter 8. And just kind of to note it, uh, this morning we're going to consider chapter 7. Later on this evening, we will consider chapter 8 and uh, maybe take a little different approach to to that particular passage. But this morning, if you'll open your Bibles to chapter 7, this is a very familiar portion of Scripture that we come up here and just kind of to kind of collect our thoughts and to <clears throat> to help see where we are in the theme of the book. We understand that uh, Joshua is, for the most part, divided up into two parts, mainly. Chapters 1 uh, through 11 have to deal with the conquest. And then uh, chapters 12 through 24, uh, deal with the allocation of the land, of the promised land. Uh, we've been in the, in, in, uh, up to chapter 6 now. In the first section, there are three main parts. Um, the first part would be the entrance into the land, the coming across the Jordan and the entrance into the land. Uh, to get the people across the Jordan would be the object of the first section. There were some obstacles there, and particularly the flood, or the, the flooded Jordan, as it were, not the flood. We're not talking about Noah, okay? As it were, it was the, the getting the people across the flooded Jordan, all right? And that was the obstacle there. The second section that we see in here was um, to, uh, in many ways, to establish the people uh, in the land of Canaan that God had promised. 
there, once they got into the Jordan, there were, or they had crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, there were two main events that would happen. One would be the circumcising of the men as a consecration to the Lord, and the other would be the rescuing, as it were, of Rahab. Uh, and then, as we get into this next section, we see that the object in this next section is to um, establish the law of God in the land of Canaan. And in Deuteronomy chapter 11, they were told that when you go into the land, you are going to pronounce both cursings and blessings. That's the law of God. They will be symbolic of two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So when they get into the land, they are to establish the law. Once they got into the land and there was the, the, the separation, as it were, the children of Israel uh, from the rest through circumcision, and then there was the rescuing of Rahab, uh, the next major event, we talked about it last week, was the... Uh, Battle of Jericho. These are the next two events in establishing the law of God. And then ultimately, once they get in there, they're to put down uh, and they're to put down the the as it were, they're to put down the opposition, those who are in the land. But the two main events in this particular part of the section of the book is the conquest of Jericho and then the conquest of of AI. And that's kind of how it's divided up. So last week we spoke about uh, the separation and the conquest. This morning we're going to look at uh, a defeat, the first defeat. They're fresh into the land. They haven't been there very long. And there is a defeat. And the defeat is brought in by sin. And so let, join me, if you would, in uh, chapter 7. And uh, verse one, one of the things we want to notice here before we begin to read is that chapter seven lays open. These are the principles of God's government. God is going to be able he's going to begin to establish his ways in the midst of his people. Now, he had given them uh, uh, the commandments and he had given them uh, all of the instructions on how they were to live earlier in Deuteronomy and Numbers. Now, when you get into chapter 7, he's going to begin to establish his principles. We're going to see that here. And interestingly enough, in chapter 7, it opens up with the word, but. And it's interesting to think about that because just before this, in chapter 6 and verse 27, we read this. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the country. So the Lord was with him, and his, he was, his fame, and it tells us later on that the king's hearts were melted because of the work that God had been doing uh, through uh, Israel, and the work that God had been doing, rather, in the midst of Israel. And then we jump into chapter 7, and this, this section begins with the word, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing. 
And so we go from Joshua, Joshua's fame and Joshua's glory to a transgression. And in many ways, this, this puts a veil over the fame of Joshua. And it was the sin of Achan that, that does this in particular. Achan, it says here, he acted treacherously. That Achan, the sin we're going to find out was that he breached the faith that God had called them to. And it suitably describes the sin of Achan who he, he had hidden some things which were to be dedicated to God which were to be separated to God. In Joshua chapter 6, in verse 19, it exp- or in verse 8, in ver- let's go back to verse 17. Joshua chapter 6, verse 17 says, Now the city, sh- talking about when you enter into the cities, right? It says, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, and all who are in it, talking about Jericho, right? We're backing up. He's speaking about Jericho. Only Rahab the harlot shall live and all who are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that were sent, that we sent. So she hid something and her hiding was a good thing. Achan hid something and his hiding was not so good. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed thing, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people and the priests blew the trumpets. So we see that they have the instruction when they go into the land what to do. So we, rent, we, we come here in, in chapter 7 and verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Camry, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the, of the tribe of Judah, took the accursed thing. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. By taking part of what was devoted to another and what was forbidden to them, the anger of the Lord had been provoked. And this was done, it wasn't done obviously by the whole party of the people. It wasn't done by the nation. It was done only by one of them. And I think there's a great indication here that teaches us that how the 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 very... Um, uh, uh, in running of sin happens in our own lives and even in our families and even in our assemblies if they are not taken care of correctly. But this thing wasn't discovered, even though it wasn't discovered, it had an effect on the whole body there. So one of the things that I wanted to do was first I wanted to look at the items that were taken. And we find that over in verse 21. And then I'm going to put these things out and then we're going to try to put it together. Hopefully this will work. In chapter 21, or or actually in, in, in verse 21, chapter 7, verse 21, in verse 20, rather, it says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. 
Now look at what happens here. He says, when I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, I took them, and they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver underings. So there were just three items that they had taken, that he had taken. Three items. The first one was a garment. And I thought it might be interesting just to find out, you know, is there any relevance to the fact of the things that he would take? Well, it was a garment. Naturally, they were in Canaan, and Canaan was a Babylonian empire. So more than likely, it wasn't just some shirt. It wasn't just a sheet that pulled over. It had some, some religious values to it, most of the commentators uh, would say. It was a garment. It was a, made of Babylonian wool, and more than likely, it was very valuable, because otherwise, why would he have taken it? Right. It probably was very colorful. He says, I saw it. I looked at it. And more than likely, it was very colorful. Maybe a long robe that was worn by the priests and by the kings of that day. Something that was manufactured and was very beautiful. So it was an obvious. And many think that that these three items were items that were found in one way or the other before the altar in Jericho when they had went in, before the altar of, of idols that they had had there. So there was this item of a, a, a robe. There was 20 shekels of silver, which I don't know what it would amount to then as far as value, and I don't even know what silver's worth now, but 20 shekels of silver would amount to about 50 pounds of silver. Silver's pretty valuable, but of course... Um, you know, the, the economies were different then. And by the way, you have a, a group of people who have just been wandering in the wilderness and they haven't seen these things. And so these are all new things to them. And then there was a wedge of gold that was about 50 shekels. Um, and, uh, and so you can do the math on that. And it's, they, they think it was like it was the, the shape of a tongue. It was a plate of gold in the shape of a tongue. It was unwrought gold, weighed 50 shekels. And in many ways, uh, you know, he more than likely found it, like I said, before an idol. It was laying there, offered before the idol. The garment was spread before it. The, 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 the gold was there. The silver was there. He looked at it. He desired it. And he took it. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? And later on, we read in, uh, in, in uh, the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, right? A very, a very simple, practical lesson. So we see that sin entered into the camp here as they entered into the promised land, right? Pretty much the same way it did in the Garden of Eden. As Eve would look at the fruit, and she would be told, and she would realize it looks good, it, it probably tastes good, it's good for me. And so she would take and ultimately send all of humanity uh, uh, separated in, into sin. So that's the items that, uh, that brought this anger of the Lord. The same thing. There's nothing new under the sun, right? It's the same thing. 
that brings sin. Okay, let's move on then. Verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho. Okay, it's, He just jumps right into something else. And by the way, I think verse 1 is just the backdrop. It's just the background of everything else that's going to happen. Obviously, we're going to see that here. So we could probably go so the, in verse, chapter 6, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. And then go right to verse 2 of chapter 7. Now Joshua sent the men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side, and spoke to them, go up and spy out the country. So the men went up, verse 3. They returned. They said, don't even bother too much about this. Just send a few people. This is a small place. It's not very populated. They're not very strong. They don't have a lot. He says, do not weary all the people, they say, the spies do, for the people are few. So Joshua decides to send 3,000 out there. He sends 3,000 went up, it says in verse 4, from the people. But the next statement, which is introduced to us with that word, but, again, and I think that but is linked to the one in verse 1. But they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as, as, far as Sherebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. You know, I kind of read that and I said, well, let me see. He sent 3,000 of them. Joshua had high expectations <laughs> because only 36 of them were killed. You know, that's a, in war, that's a pretty good ratio in a lot of ways, especially in this kind of a conflict. But Joshua had high expectations of these people. And the victory of Jericho, without consideration, led him to a negligence that would cause 36 men to die. The work was thought to be easy. And after God had manifested his power in Jericho, Joshua had a confidence, you know, but I think in many ways this was more of a self-confidence. Now, I know Joshua and the book of Joshua is the gospel of salvation. But here I think we see some of the humanity of Joshua, right? Some of the humanity in his life. One of the things I think in particular that most of us are going to realize that even though this is only the second battle, Joshua had already forgot to consult the Lord about this. He took it into, he took it for granted that we're, and this is an easy one. So he neglected to consult the Lord in this. It was just a small city, sent 3,000, we can take it. They went up, they viewed the country, but God was forgotten already. And the consequence of that is seen. But even though it was, it, it was a, a small group, you know, of course, you know, you don't want to even see one person lost in a war. 36 of them, I can tell you, this was a sufficient rebuke of God's providence in many ways. Their loss, it was small, but it resulted in their shame being great. The result was small, or the loss was small, but their shame 
was great. And Joshua would explain that in verses 6 um, through 9. He, Joshua would, it says, Then Joshua tore his clothes, he fell to the earth and his face before the ark until evening, and the elders were doing it too. They put dust on their heads, and Joshua begins to complain. Sounds like another situation too. When the children of Israel were set up against... Um, when the Pharaoh was coming over and the children of Israel were set up against the Red Sea. Did you bring us here to die? So it says, And Joshua tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, Lord, God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And then he begins, Oh, Lord, what shall I say? When Israel turns its back before its enemies, like they just did. Now, again, you have to understand, this is the first battle where they had actually went toward the battle. Remember the last one in Jericho, what did they do? They surrounded it, and God dropped the walls. And then they went in and took over. This is one where they had to to pursue it. They had to enter into it. And he says, but instead of going, they all fled. They were scared. He says, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it. They'll surround us. They'll cut off our name from the earth. And then, what will you do for your great name? Interesting. What will you do for your great name? He cries unto the Lord. In this case, he has... This Joshua is the one who has the spirit and he's taken by surprise because he didn't act according to the spirit. Because he took it into his own hands. He falls on his face. This is not normal. This is not what we expected. He's been taken by surprise. And one of the things he does here is he recalls, he begins to recall two things. He recalls the power how God had redeemed them from the Jordan and he begins to contrast it with the event that just happened. And it's inconsistent. He says, wherefore, have you brought us out over the Jordan to deliver us into the hand? And and this is a perturbed state of mind. He's confused. And sin is like that, isn't it? Sin in the camp will cause us to not think clearly. There was a mixture of unbelief, not unbelief about God, but unbelief about what had happened. How could this possibly happen? And there was a mixture of that and remembering how God had done so many great miracles before that. So Joshua goes to the Lord and the Lord answers in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie on your face like this? Israel has sinned, and he wouldn't know this. This is a great lesson for Joshua. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, for they've taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they also put it amongst their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but they turned their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed. Do you remember what the Lord said in Joshua 6, 
when he told them, the city is doomed, right? And you are not to take any of the doomed stuff, lest you become, what? Doomed. So taking of this created or brought them in the same condemnation of those that they had just overtaken, right? So he says, you, you, the children of Israel could not stand before them. They turned their backs and they are doomed, basically. So to resolve it, verse 13, he says, get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourself for tomorrow because thus says the Lord. And this is what he says here. Look, first he says, in verse 14, the children of Israel could not stand before. Now he says, oh, Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take the accursed thing away from among you. So the answer of the divine oracle was to this effect. Unfaithfulness was not on God's part. Right? The unfaithfulness was on the sin of the people. The unfaithfulness was on the sin of the people. The conditions of the covenant had been violated. The people were liable to destruction equally with the accursed Canaanites there. Well, Joshua, in response, very ready. We see Joshua's readiness. And, you know, the, you know one thing that we can note here is that the folly of those that promise themselves secrecy in sin is just that, folly. It's just that. Achan's sin began in his eye. He saw that things were good, and it proceeded out of his heart. The sin became a national thing, as the Lord said that it would, according to the way that the Lord had established it. The whole nation, no doubt, through its usual representatives, took part in ex executing the sentence later on that we're going to see. So Achan had fallen by his own act under the ban in, in Joshua 6.18, and consequently his whole family and his whole, his whole, everything that he owned was ultimately taken and burned. Now come down with me, if you would, to verse 19. And we're just going to kind of skip over the, you know, the process by which they, they took lots and they got down to where Achan was. In verse, in, verse nine, in, uh, in verse 19, we already read that. And then in verse 20, we see, so Joshua sent messages after, after oh, this is an interesting thing, that Joshua would say uh, to... to uh, to Achan in verse 19. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. There's a lot of ways to bring glory to God. This is one that's expressed right here. Confession brings glory to God. And so Achan would tell him what he had done. And he said, don't hide it from me. So Joshua, in verse 20, he sent the messengers. And we see Joshua's readiness. We see that he sends them. And, and he says, they ran to the tent. 
Why did they run to the tent? Well, I don't know. The anxiety of they saw what was going on. They had lost the battle. And I'm going to tell you what. When there's sin in our lives, readiness to execute judgment and confession on it ought to come quickly. Not put it aside. Not wait till later. There ought to be a readiness in our own lives to deal with the sin that brings doom to the camp in many ways. So verse 21, And they took them from the midst of the tent. They brought them to Joshua and all the children of Israel. And they laid them before the Lord. Then Joshua and Israel with them took Achan, the son of Zerah, took the silver, the garment, the wedge, the gold, everything. And by, by the way, that particular silver, that particular gold was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord. But ultimately it didn't get there. They took all these things, his daughters, everything he owned, his donkeys, everything they took it. They took it to the valley. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us this way? Why have you troubled us this way? The Lord's going to trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned them. They burned them with fire. And they had, and they had stones with them. And with fire, they had stoned them with the stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, and it's still there today as a memorial. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Acre. I think a key verse in this particular chapter is verse 8, chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. Chapter 7, verse 8 and 9, it says, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites... And all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut us off from the earth. Then what will you do for your name's sake? The point I want to make here is we cannot at any time urge a better plan than this. Lord, what will you do for your name? Lord, be glorified in all that I do. And then we welcome his will. That's what Joshua did here. He would say, Lord, your name is involved with this. What will you do? And just some applications as we've picked up a couple of them already. But just maybe a few more applications before we close. The Bible teaches us that the love of the world is the root of all bitterness. And it becomes very deeply rooted if you don't take care of it. We want to take heed of the sin in our own lives on a daily basis. This morning we came and remembered the Lord. Remembering the death of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to bring us to the sin in our own life as we're reminded He's there because of my sin. And we take, we take heed of the sin in our own lives lest we be defiled and disquieted just like the children of Israel were there. Hebrews 12:15 it tells us, looking diligently, lest any man fail to the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. It doesn't just affect us. It's in our families. It affects your families. It affects your children. It affects your spouses. It affects your brothers and sisters. 
And it doesn't just affect them. Sin in our lives affects the assembly. It affects the meeting place here as we come together and if we don't deal with it appropriately. In First John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father. God's not interested in those things. That's the world's interests. Right? And the world passes away, and the lust passes away, but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. So we want to take heed of, of, of the sin in our own lives, we want, you know, and as believers, you know, we can kind of get caught up. I think about it in my own life, you know, we take it for granted. I'm saved by grace through faith, right? But that sin can creep in there. And that sin can go ahead and take root. And then it affects everything that's around me, just like it did in the camp there. But we also need to take kin or take, take heed of, of sitting with sinners, of having fellowship with sinners, you know, I, I use an old saying, uh, you know, it's hard to fly like an eagle if you surround yourself with turkeys, right? You surround yourself with sinners, and guess what? It becomes easy to do. It becomes easier and easier to sin. We want to take heed of having fellowship with sinners lest we share their guilt and its potential there. It concerns us. We want to watch over one another. We want to prevent sin. Because the sin of others creates a lot of damage. So the love of the world is the root of bitterness. We've got to be careful with it. Another thing that maybe we can take away from this is that times of danger and trouble should be red flags to us and should lead us to a time of reformation, a, ch- a time of confession, a time of change. We want to look in our homes. We want to look in our hearts. We look in our house. We, we want to make a diligent search to find out if there is some accursed thing in my life. Is there no real growth? Is there no anticipation of your fellowship with the Lord? Are you concerned about the name of the Lord God? Do you care what he thinks about his name? That's what Joshua was concerned about. What are people going to think? What are people going to think about your name? We cannot prosper until that accursed thing is taken out from the camp. It has to be destroyed out of our hearts. It has to be put out of our habits. It has to be put out of our families. And it has to be forsaken in our lives. Perhaps there's that hindering of your spiritual growth. This is a great illustration of what happens when those things are in your life. So the promise that Christ has made to the church is this. John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Do you live an abundant life? Are you growing in the grace of Christ? In Joshua, we see a very vivid type of Christian living. Israel, they were, their, their 
their Sabbath, their rest was when they got into the land. Right? But for the Christian, our rest is in Christ Jesus. Their Sabbath was in a land. Ours is in a relationship. In John 15, the Lord Jesus would say, Abide in me and I in you. Our abiding is not in a land, but our abiding is in a relationship. Our Sabbath is not in a land. Our Sabbath is not in our possessions. Right? We can be taken up with that. But our Sabbath is in abiding in Christ. By fellowshipping with Him. By coming to the place where we look forward to entering into Him. Entering in with Him. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch can't bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. So there's an abiding for the Christian. And then there's also a filling later on in the same chapter. In chapter 5, John 15, 11, it says, The Lord Jesus says, These things I have spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. That can't happen if there's sin in the camp. That can't happen if that accursed thing is there resisting the Spirit of God. So we see Israel was looking for a rest in the land. The Christians rest is in the peace that comes in the victory over our enemies. In the victory through the power of God. In the victory over sin. What can we learn from Joshua? We need to do a thorough search in our own hearts and our own minds. We need to make sure the accursed thing is out. Hebrews 9 or Hebrews chapter 4 says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did his. So there's a rest for us in Christ Jesus. We don't work for it. Christ has done the work for us as we talked about this morning. But there's a rest there. But it doesn't mean a rest without responsibility. Because later on in that same chapter, the writer would say, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Achan didn't believe that he'd be doomed. But he was. And the whole family of Israel is doomed, was doomed as well. Until there was confession and that accursed thing was put out, Israel couldn't have victory. They could not stand against the enemy. And the same thing is in the Christian's life. Till that accursed thing is put out, there will be no victory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. And you know the considerations of each of our hearts and the needs of each of our hearts. And this morning, we've taken the privilege, and though maybe it's scattered, I ask, Lord, that you just help bring it all together and help us to uh, understand the lesson here taught to us through the Spirit of God in your book help us to learn that there's you are a holy God and you call us to be holy and our holiness or our sinfulness will affect all those around us I pray father that this would help us this particular
lesson would help us to do a search in our hearts and our lives so that we can receive victory in our spiritual lives, so that we can receive victory in our relationship to the one who was nailed upon the cross, to the one who died on my behalf because he loves me. And so we thank you, Father. Help us to draw near to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.